Josh and I are going to tag team tonight, and so uh, I'm going to take part. I'm going to hand it over to Josh, and then I'm going to take back over. But uh, let me go ahead and just open this in a prayer, and we'll get, uh, we'll get right into it. Let's pray. Uh, my Father in heaven, I just uh, love you for the gift of one more day. Um, I pray, uh, Father, that uh, to get together collectively uh, we'll sit down at your feet, and somehow um, by your Spirit we would find the same passion that Israel uh, found, um, that you'd teach us to depend on you, that you'd teach us to um, to love you, to really love you as a father, to come to you and, and as a child needs their parents. I uh, pray that you would teach us need and teach us dependence um, as your people. Um, I love you so much, God, for the gift of this message for Joshua and his friendship and the study that he's bringing as well. And uh, just love you for the opportunity. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, so, so I've been thinking about this, this theme, and I had a couple of subjects for tonight. And because I covered some of the first one on Sunday, I'm kind of skipping ahead. And we lost a week last week. But uh, um, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about the desert and thinking about the wilderness. And being stuck in a situation where um, you have no choice but to depend on God. And I don't want to take too, too much time with this, but I would like to open with maybe an example from you. A, a time in your life where you can think of a circumstance where you had no choice. You were put in a place that maybe God led you where you had no choice but to depend completely on God. And he led you there. What's an example of that? Okay. I identify with that example probably more than any other. The, the example is having a friend, having a relative, someone close to you that you deeply want to, to, to help, you want to reach out to, but you're in a position where there is nothing you can do but depend on God and pray to God or something like that. What else? Position your life where you were put in that place where you think God, and I, I am specifically looking for you think God led you there, so you had no choice but to depend. Nothing else you could do. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. You know, I actually really love it that you shared that illustration of a, you know, someone that you're drawn to in your life and you just feel that it's at least to some capacity, Satan is attacking you through a person. Okay. And I know that sounds hard to say that, but how many of the Psalms are about that exact subject? You know, um, this, <laughs> this is what is, is all over the Psalms is you, man, people are surrounding me. People are against me. My God be my defender, you know, um, I can think of a number of times in my life where God led me to a place where I had no choice, right? Go ahead, Chuck. I was going to say that uh, what came to mind to me, for, for, to be honest, and many people have heard this, is when I became a Christian, mm -hmm. um, I was out, or before I became a Christian, I was out selling books door to door in Pensacola, Florida. And that lifestyle is a pretty lonely. I imagine. Environment. I imagine. And yet, what 
what made it amazing is that that's the very time when God used Christians that I came in contact with for the first time in my life. Yeah. And they invited me in for lunch. Yeah. They invited me home for dinner yeah. that evening to come back to be with their family. And throughout that summer, then uh, various people from various denominations all talked about Christianity to, to me. And when I moved, and right after that summer was when I moved up here to Colorado from Arizona yeah. and became a Christian because wow. of that summer. Wow. So that was a very definite uh -huh. experience, being a door-to-door -door salesman. I imagine. Uh, I would absolutely yeah. hate that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I'm just thinking about... Uh, you know, I got a call last night from a young man that's in this situation. I got to uh, talk with him and pray about with him for a long time because he's been put in this situation right now. And this has been on my heart, just this idea of the wilderness in the Bible. Um, and it was funny when I was going through biblical locations that really meant something to Israel, even though this isn't a specific spot on the map. In fact, it's the majority of the map. Um, this wilderness, it was one of the most symbolic places for Israel. And that's why you see... Um, David goes there over and over again. Moses goes there. Usually the number 40. I'm not going to get into weirdness tonight, but usually the number 40 is associated with the wilderness. People go there for 40 years. People go there for 40 days. It always seems to be associated with the wilderness. Did you know that Paul, when he became a Christian, the first thing he did, do you remember? I didn't. Saudi Arabia. Yeah, he, I, yeah, I didn't. Yeah. The Arab. I went to, use the word Arabia or the Arab, and I didn't consult any man. I didn't go talk to any man. I went to, and the word he uses is the wilderness. Now, he, he not just uses that word, but that specific wilderness, the wilderness of Judea right there, that is where the law was received, um, down in Horeb, down in Sinai. I don't know that he went down to Horeb, that he went down to Sinai, but can you imagine devoting your life to the law and the studying of the law and in a moment realizing you've been persecuting God's church, everything, and you have to go rethink everything from Genesis to Exodus to, to Malachi. You have to go rethink your whole faith. He goes to the wilderness. And it's a place where God led his people so that they would trust him entirely, so that they would learn um, like Jesus says, man doesn't live on bread alone, but you will depend on me. I will be your source. Now, my parents are in the room. My parents' dream for me growing up was that I would not desperately need them every day, right? Most parents can identify with that. Your dream is that you would not, you, I would not need to call them every day. There's been times when I have needed to. Why would God want his children to come to a place where we need him? You know, when you think as parents, man, I sure would like my children to be in a place where they don't need me. You know, fair question. What do you think? Yeah. Okay, that's, that's always a good, I like that answer. His way is the best way, exactly. Well, why do you think God wants us to need him? You know, isn't, why doesn't it just make God happy that I'm standing on my own feet without him, you know? Yeah. But God knows that we can't do that in a spiritual way, and that's why He sent Christ in the first place. So wow. If yeah. We did not need Him. Then we wouldn't recognize. Okay. The need to have Him in our in our 
I love that answer. She basically just said, because your scenario is an impossibility, you can't come to a place where you don't need God, right? So I like that, yeah. That's right. So in a worldly sense, when you desire your children to be able to go out in the world and, and, and rule themselves, yeah. they'll always be disappointed. Right. Your children won't be able to. If you raise your children to stand on the Lord, then you have nothing to worry about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Chuck. We are children of God, but we're also the bride of Christ. And when you look at it from the standpoint of a marriage mm-hmm. relationship, which is what we, I believe anyway, I, yeah. I use that marriage relationship as what we are, what we come into when we are baptized, mm-hmm. is that we are baptized into Christ and into that marriage relationship with him. Yeah. And in a marriage relationship, you want that dependence, you want that inner relationship. Yeah. You, that's, that's, that's the whole, if, if I was independent from love, well, but anyway. right. I always take advantage of that too. I do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The ideal is that unity with your spouse. Yeah. Which Lois and I do share. Yeah. And that I in fact I use that as, as part of my basis and foundation for what should my life with what, what should my relationship with God like be like? Yeah, yeah kind of like with my wife. Yeah. Yeah, in fact more so. Absolutely. I love ideal, that. Ideal. The ideal marriage. All right, let me get two more here. You know, I'll start with Heather. I say, I think you hit the nail on the head because mm-hmm. in marriage, you choose that other person. So in, in that marriage with God, you're choosing him. You know, in a parent-child relationship, Yes. you don't get to choose your parents, um, you know. And so, right. But, but in that marriage sense, you've made a commitment and, yeah. and you need to honor, we need to honor that commitment and seek God first in everything that we do. I love how fervently God fights for that relationship. You know, through Scripture, it's like it's one of those things where it, when it's falling, God fights for it. He says, we will not fall out of love, and I'm going to make everything happen. That's not going to happen here, and he does seem to fight for it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, where if we were to worship our parents, that would be an idol. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's either it's either God or Satan, and I think he wants the best for us. So that if we're worshiping him, you know, we're not going to be on the other side and worshiping Satan by doing his ways. Yeah, absolutely. I know there's a few more comments. I'm going to kind of come back to some of those comments in a minute. But I kind of wanted to introduce tonight's class with this theme, just talking about dependence of God. I wanted to remind you of times in your life where you've been there. Uh, tonight, and just in a little bit, we're going to get to this idea of the Ebenezer and raising a rock of remembrance and raising this thing where I look back and say, man, that's something I should never have forgotten. I should never have forgotten that moment, that time, that place. Um, and in this land of Israel, we're going through this theme of the rocks cry out. We're going to go to different locations through this series and talk about what it meant. The land of Israel as a whole, what we call the promised land, is only about as big as the front range of Colorado. Okay? It's, 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 not, 
It's not like Texas or anything like that. It's a region that would be um, about the front range of Colorado. Um, and you would walk past, everywhere you go, you would walk past monuments and things that meant something to the nation. And just like many of us today, the problem is you would put, walk past these monuments that were sacred, that represented something. And if you're anything like me, I walk past those things and never think about them. Okay, they are just monuments to me. I don't, I don't stop and think the way I should. And I know that that's what happened in their history. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Joshua um, and I study about once a week uh, together. And he always, he's been deep in the Word, just digging uh, for a while. And he always brings stuff. And man, he brought something to me last week that I got super excited about. And I asked if he would share it tonight. And it kind of relates to our theme. Um, and so I'm going to kind of turn it over to, uh, to Joshua, and let him, uh, Joshua and let him share some of those thoughts. <clears throat> Okay, how about now? Perfect. All right, guys. Uh, I just want to share something that I found that, uh, like Jeff said, I was just reading through the scripture, and uh, uh, it was it was, uh, it was a Ravi Zacharias reference actually, where this where he was just saying, "Man, have a new believer read the book of John." Um, and I thought, you know, I haven't read John in a while, so I picked it up and started reading. And uh, the story I'm going to share with you tonight is a pretty common one, I would say. It's the story about Jesus feeding the 5,000. Um, so to start, I just want to read the story, and um, then we'll get to what I found uh, or what stuck out to me this time that I've never noticed before. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we'll go from there. So this is uh, John 6, starting in verse 1, if you guys want to follow, uh, follow along. So it says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Uh, Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the, bar of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, the thing that stuck out to me this time that I've never noticed before um, 
was uh, related to this question. So Jesus is doing something miraculous. He's taking a little bit of food, tiny amount of food, and he's feeding thousands of people. Um, But I've never, ever thought of what degree Jesus fed these people to. So if we skip, if we, if we jump back to verse 11, what does it say? It says, Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed those who were seated as much as they wanted. Now, that just blew my mind. I was like, as much as they wanted. So it's not like there's a limit on this, this miracle that Jesus provided. He is, you know, <laughs> he's taking basically nothing and turning it into as much as they wanted. And I'm guessing 5,000 guys could eat a lot of food plus whoever else was there. So as much as they wanted. Well, if uh, the, the other thing, too, that, we, that, that it talks about is, uh, is, is that they picked up 12 baskets full of, of leftovers. Well, Jesus is talking to a largely Jewish audience and... Twelve baskets of leftovers, if you're thinking Jewishly, should remind us of twelve tribes of Israel. Um, Jesus is also saying, if we read just a few more verses down, if we skip down to verse uh, 35 in this same chapter, Jesus is going to tell us that he is the bread of life. Um, and so if, if I'm thinking about that, what other story is there in Jewish history where... Uh, bread of life is coming from heaven for Israelites. Exodus, Exodus 16, um, Moses is, is feeding all the Israelites with manna from heaven. And if we go over there, it's going to tell us the exact same thing. It says some people, well, it tells them, you're supposed to gather this much if you have lots of people or per person in your tent. But it doesn't matter who your tent is or, or where you came from. It says, gather as much as you want. Keep nothing for tomorrow, and everybody has as much as they want, um, whether you want a lot or a little. And I just thought about that too, and uh, and and that that phrase, as much as they wanted, is says to me, okay, I'm sitting here with my hand on a tap, if if you will. This is the picture I got in my mind, and what comes out of that tap is Jesus Christ, is God. Because I can have as much of him as I want. There's no limit. There's an unlimited supply of Jesus. And I can have as much as I want. And, and frankly, that just blew my mind. So I'm the one that is, that is limiting the amount of Jesus that I experience in my life. And that's a humbling thought. And uh, so anyway, there's this principle here that I want to take that we can, we're the ones that limit God in our life or however much of him we want in our life. So I want to take you to a couple of other stories where I think this principle is really uh, shown out to be true. Um, and to do that, I want to go to... Uh, sec- first First story is uh, going to be in Second Kings uh, chapter 4. And I think we're all pretty... F- Probably pretty reasonably familiar with this story. This is the, the widow filling her, uh, her pots with oil that she's working with Elisha. So starting in verse 1, uh, we're going to go just a little ways here. But it says, The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. 
Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and, they, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. So when 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 did the oil stop? You guys you guys can answer. When we ran out of jars. Well how many jars did she was she told to get? As many as she could. So okay, so here's a woman and, and and it seems like she demonstrates a pretty pretty decent level of faith here because she gets enough jars to go and pay off all of her debts and live on what was left. So I, I would say good on her, all right? But uh, but yeah, and I guess I'll I'll just put one other note uh, on this story, which is just that, man, we're empty jars, uh, and and we need Christ to fill us. But um, okay, next story. Let's skip over to Second uh, Kings uh, thirteen uh, verses. We're going to be in verse fourteen, starting out. Uh, chapter 13, and starting in chapter 14, or excuse me, verse 14. Now let me just paint the picture paint the picture of uh, this scene here, what's going on. So Elisha is on his deathbed. He's just about to leave this earth. And Israel has been fighting wars with the kingdom of Aram for a while now, um, and this king of uh, the king of Israel, Jehoash, at the time, not a good king. That's uh, sort of not the point of this story. But he's he's panicking because he realizes that Elisha is on his deathbed, and Elisha has sort of been like a, a really strong hand for Israel this whole time that he's been alive. A lot of really great things have happened while Elisha is there. So this guy's freaking out because, man, as soon as Elisha dies, Aram is probably going to come in and invade Israel, and we're going to have problems. So he comes in to Elisha, Elisha and, this, and uh, this, is, this is what's going on. So it says, Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, Get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you, have struck the, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. 
So I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say he probably had five or six arrows in his quiver, and Elisha maybe couldn't see exactly. Because I, I, I believe just based on this principle, had Jehoash emptied his quiver into the floor, man, we've got unlimited victories over Aram because of that display of faith. He's just been shown in a couple verses previous, this is the Lord's arrow of victory. This is what this means when you shoot an arrow. This is, your, this is victory over your enemies. Why on earth would you stop at just a few victories? Why, why wouldn't you go until your bow broke or your arm fell off or something if, the, if you're the king? All right, so we see an example here of, uh, of, of, I would say, a very faithful woman. And then we've got an evil king who's basically being held up by the promise of God because of something his great-grandfather did. Um, who's, who's not faithful? Um, but really, like I said, the, the bottom line, the question is, how much do you want? How much God do you want? Because he's, he's got an unlimited supply. He will give you whatever you want. Now, there's one catch that I want to point out, and this will go back to Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, the catch would be, when we come to Christ, there's, there's a manner of how we come to Christ. It's not just on our terms. It's on God's terms. And when, uh, when, when Jesus is about to feed the 5,000, there is a simple instruction. There is an instruction, but it's a simple one. He says, sit down. Sit down on the floor. That's it. I mean, not, not a big deal, but just sit down, and then I will feed you. And to those who sat down, they received food, and those who didn't sit down didn't receive it. Um, so... I would say for us, what that means is when we're going to come to Christ, man, we got to be humble. We got to we got to come to Him on His terms. We got to come to Him on our knees. Um, and so, to illustrate that story, I want to go to uh, another another familiar story. Uh, you guys are probably all familiar with Naaman. Um, so let's go back to Second uh, Kings and uh, chapter five. Uh, and we'll start in verse 9. Oh, and by the way, this is really cool. So Naaman is a captain in the army of the Aramaeans. And the only reason he gets any of this information is that he has captured a, a Jewish woman as his slave, an Israelite slave. Um, and she wants to help him out because she knows he has leprosy. So she says, go talk to, uh, go talk to Israel. There's a prophet down there. Okay, starting in verse 9. It says, uh, So Naaman went with horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? 
do not do that. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Um, and I just think, man, isn't isn't that the case for us? Like, if if God had given us something great or majestic to do that would have put us in a position that maybe glorifies us, I mean, who wouldn't jump at that opportunity to receive glory on behalf of doing something great for God? But, you know, the Jordan River, I mean, Jeff showed a picture of it in his sermon, I think, a couple weeks ago. Jordan River is looks nasty, looks... <laughs> looks like more like mud than than river water so um so i i mean understandable but if if that's the the case you know why not go and do that so um there's one more story that i want to share with you but uh i don't know that i'm going to read the whole story for you cuz this one's a fun one to go and study on your own uh but it's the same 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 book second kings chapter 1 um and and real briefly, the king of Israel has uh, has some disease, and he wants to find out what's going to happen to him because of this disease that he has. And the first thing he does is he sends a bunch of his men out to go and seek the seek the guidance of these other gods, these that people have been worshiping in the area, and. Elijah hears about it, and so Elijah goes and he meets these men. Uh, he meets these men on the road as they're on their way to go and consult these other gods, and just tells them, just to their face, what's going to happen to their king. Well, these guys go back to the king and talk to him, and the king then sends groups of men to go and talk to Elijah. Uh, and Elijah does some pretty interesting stuff after that. But you guys are going to have to have to read that on your own. So anyway, thanks for listening. To share some of that tonight is because I was going to talk about this desperation, this idea of need. And I was, and it hit me when he was sharing these thoughts. I said, man, that's, that's what's crazy is we're desperate for the things we know that we need. You understand the things that we know that we need, but the problem in what this message revealed to me is what about the things that we're unaware of? That we need. In other words, we we often are thinking very small. These are my personal needs. This is what, and then God is saying, I want you to open up your arms. I want you to open up your eyes. I want you to think bigger to the needs around you. That there is so much more. This idea of desperation. I saw the movie Schindler's List, and that is a hard movie to watch. Okay, that movie is. I don't recommend it to everybody, but man, um, powerful scene at the end of this movie. Um, we're talking about our staff where, where um, you know, you'd be praying if you were in a situation like this in the Holocaust. That's when movies about the Holocaust. You'd be praying about maybe your personal deliverance. You'd be praying, of course, he was German, but you'd be praying about um, maybe certain individuals. And he is giving himself all of his resources, everything he's got to rescuing as many Jews as possible. And at the end of the movie, there's just one scene. I won't give away the whole movie, but there's just one scene where he just breaks down crying, just uncontrollable sobbing because he wanted to save more. There, it was just like, this is how many, I, this is what I got, this is what I did, but I, it could have been so much more. It could have been so much more. And it just 
open my eyes to the grace that you want me to receive. Um, And I was thinking about Jonah's prayer this morning. Jonah didn't say a lot of wise things, but in his prayer, he said something incredible from, you know, below the sea. He said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. You're clinging to something and you're forfeiting the grace that God wants you to have. A greater vision, a bigger vision, filling yourself up more with what God could be giving us, you know. And this is, it's, it's really um, put it on my heart to think, man, how do I apply this message um, to myself? And this story of Ebenezer hit me. Um, I, this is it. This is the story. A nation that has been raised to depend on God. They were brought out of slavery. They have never had anything their own. From the time they were children, it's manna in the wilderness, God leading them. He is their, he is their light. He is their shade. You would wake up in the morning, and I talk about this a lot, but you would wake up in the morning, and you would look to the sky, and if the pillar of cloud led you, then you followed it, and if it stayed still, you'd stayed still, but it was trained dependence on a God every single day. And that's why I love that part of Josh in your message where he said, man, they took, ate as much of the manna as they wanted. But why does God say, don't save it for tomorrow? Because you will trust me for tomorrow. This is your provision for today, but you will trust me tomorrow as well. Every single day, I'm training you in trust. So in the story of, um, in 1 Samuel 7, the ark of God has been something that Samuel was raised with. Uh, from the time he was a child, um, man, it, Scripture indicates that that was his bedroom. And I know that's weird, but the Ark of the Covenant was the, the Holy of Holy, the temple. This was Samuel's bedroom. This is where he slept. This was his personal home, the Ark, right? Um, and he's being raised and he's going to lead Israel. Israel goes to war. The story goes they're going up against the Philistines. 4,000 Israelites die in the story. They said, oh, yeah, we forgot to bring the Ark of the Covenant. So they go back and they bring the Ark of the Covenant this time. And now 30,000 of them are wiped out because they treated God as a good luck charm. Uh, This is my WWJD bracelet that I forgot to wear um, kind of a thing. But not a dependence, not their Lord, not everything. Um, so the, the ark is taken from them. It's, it's in uh, Philistine territory from Ashdod to Gath Ekron for, for 20 years. And this part of the story, though, that means so much to me personally, I'm just going to begin reading in verse 5. After the ark has been returned to Israel, um, Samuel finally speaks to the people. And let me tell you, Samuel's voice has not been heard at all during any of this. And that's crazy to me that this whole story has been about Samuel. As soon as the ark is captured, you never hear his voice. He's gone. He's not in the picture. And now all of a sudden he speaks and he says this, Assemble all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. You're going on this wilderness to this place, Mizpah, which was where the first battle took place. Uh, with the Philistines. This, you're coming right back to the scene. You're coming right back to this moment. And when you go on this journey to get there, you're thirsty. You took out water and you said, I'm dumping it out before the Lord. My God, I need you. I need you more than anything right now, more than drink, more than 
anything. And it says this. On the day they fasted, and there, were, they, there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord your God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb, offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out on the, uh, to, um, to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage in battle. But that day the Lord thundered a loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them all the way to the point of beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israel and Israelite territory again. Um, it's, it's been a powerful story for many of you, probably in your lives. For me, it's, it's, it's always been an important question for me. What Ebenezer's have I, have I raised in my life? Have I set up in my life? Um, but he did it for one reason, for future generations, that they would walk past that stone that my children don't have to learn the lessons that I learned the way I learned them. I don't want it to happen that way. I want them to walk by this stone. I want them to walk by this rock of remembrance and remember what God did when we were in desperate need, when we absolutely needed him with everything that was in us. Jesus said this, if you remain in me uh, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. I thought about this in this opportunity in prayer, and what God is, what I hope he's speaking to us through this message today. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the poster or seen the t-shirt where a Jeep is stuck between two rocks, and there's just nothing below it, and the front bumper's caught on a cliff, and the back bumper's caught on a cliff. And the caption says, if you're calm at a time like this, you don't understand the situation. <laughs> I really like that, and I thought, what an appropriate image for the church and for Christians today. If you're calm at a time like this, if we're not desperately praying and opening up our arms and saying, God, we need you for a bigger cause than maybe sometimes we're praying about, and I'm desperate for you for more than just the friends in my immediate circle that I've been praying about, but opening up my jars, taking what Josh is talking about, and saying, God, give me a bigger image of what I need to be desperate for right now. Help me to see the bigger picture of what's taking place. Uh, Help me to not just pray about my close circle of friends. Help me lift up my vision to Fort Collins. Help me lift up my vision to the United States. Help me lift up my vision to something bigger than this, and God makes that promise, bring more jars. Bring more jars to me. Let me fill them. Let me meet those needs. Um, That's been a convicting message to me, to think bigger, uh, to pray bigger, and to hear this message. Whenever you hear a message that's repeated over and over and over in Scripture is important. Could not believe that thread when, when Joshua found it. 
how many times God says, how much are you willing to bring? How many arrows are you going to shoot? How many jars are you going to bring? I'm ready to fill you. I just need you to pray big, to think big. And as a people, um, I know we need to do that. I want to challenge you on this idea of Ebenezer's. Um, Think of those Ebenezer's in your life. Think about those times where God led you back to a place where you desperately needed him. Most likely it was because you were in a place where you don't have the securities that you have probably right now. And then I would like to look at it this way. I, um, I, I spent a lot of time just thinking about this idea of being comfortable, being in a place where I'm not in need, and thinking, what if I were as a person that right now I have my health, I feel secure, I have a strong marriage, I have a lot going well in my life, and that's not a curse, I hope nobody thinks that's a curse, but it does put us in a place where, what if I'm not desperate right now? What if I don't need God desperately right now? It's because I don't understand the situation. It's because I don't understand the situation. There is a terrible, incredible need right now. And I hope God doesn't need to bring me to the places he had to bring Israel to remind me of that need. So somehow in our securities, and I'm talking to a room full of most people in this room, fairly secure situation, that God in our securities would still bring us to a place of need and teach us that spirit even when we feel secure. Um, and I think that that's, uh, that's something that I don't want the church to lose sight of today. Uh, let's, let's pray. Uh, uh, Father, I just, um, I, 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 this message is incomplete, and um, there's just a lot of heart work uh, that, that I need, and I know that we as a body need. And I, I'm, not, I'm not ungrateful. Um, I'm thankful, God, every day for my wife. I'm thankful for my home. I'm thankful for the securities that I live in. Um, but I, 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 I'm terrified that I and, and we as a body would lose our desperation for you and our need for you. I'm scared that we can become short-sighted and not see the big picture and how desperately in need of you we are in actuality. Uh, God, our enemy is so deceptive and he's so powerful and we have been put in a situation where we have the incredible honor of the burden of the gospel in this place. And I pray, God, that you would show us what it means to come to you with, with arms wide open, that, that we would somehow learn to empty ourselves completely. And that we would fill ourselves with the kind of love for others and the kind of love for uh, the body um, that would cause us to pray in desperation again. Um, Thank you so much for Joshua, just the way he encourages me, how he stays in the word. And uh, I, just, I just praise you um, for the body here and what you are doing, that God, just don't allow us to be stagnant, to let us move. It's in Christ we pray, amen.